0: I want to welcome you here on this somewhat uh, stormy day, especially if you're joining us online. My name is James. I'm the associate pastor here. Now, back in November, um, myself and Greg Nicholson, our lead pastor, and Peter Boyer, one of our elders, we went down to Nashville for a conference now, as soon as you step off the plane in Nashville, you get these hints that Nashville is a city that is serious about music. Throughout the airport, they have pictures of these musical moments that took place in the city everywhere. You, you walk through the airport, they have these beautiful uh, Gibson guitars on display in these glass cases. I was going, I wonder if my wife would mind if I brought back a souvenir. Didn't, might be a little bit pricey. But uh, there's also a, a live band playing in the airport as you're walking through. But it's not just the airport. Uh, we went to a few churches, and there they had some worship teams. And n- nothing against our worship teams. But these were like professional musicians. Like they were ridiculously good. But it, w- it was more than that. We decided, you know what, let's, let's go do some sightseeing. And so we, we went down to uh, Broadway or, or Music Row and so uh, bar after bar after bar, we weren't drinking, don't worry, uh, but has live uh, bands playing there. And they're, they're covering kind of mainstream music, but they are just as good as the bands that originally put them out there. Now, one of my traveling companions did say, with all the lights and the loud noises, this place is a little bit scary. So we, we didn't stay too long on Music Row, and we got out of there And we headed to kind of the temple of of music. We went and stood in front of the Grand Ole Opry. And we got a picture taken in front of the guitars. And so when you're in Nashville, it's just kind of obvious. This is a city that is obsessed with music. Music is important to that city. And it seemed like every third guy was wearing a cowboy hat and carrying a, a guitar. That's just kind of the culture of Nashville. Now, if you go anywhere, you're going to notice that Every place kind of has a culture. They, they have things that they are, are proud of, that they, they, they take pride in as a people. And so for Halifax, we would probably take pride in our universities, our, our naval and military history. But I think our greatest point of pride is probably the donaire. Um, I think that's the thing we're the most proud of. Everybody's saying we have donaires here. If you haven't tried one, you, you should. It's, it's worth it. Now today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 and if you have your Bible, you can open it up and just kind of leave it there, but the, the Apostle Paul, he's in the city of Athens in Greece. Now, Athens was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. It was uh, the center of philosophy, literature, science, and art. It was the home to great thinkers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and so today's Today, if you go to Athens, you, you can go and see all these ancient uh, buildings. You can see the statues. And so it's a city that's got a mix of um, modernity, but also this rich, rich history. And people will go there, and they'll look at it. And they'll go, look at all uh, these buildings. Look at these statues. It's, it's beautiful art. Now, Paul is, is in Athens, and he's waiting for some of his ministry partners to come and join him and so he's doing some sightseeing and so we're going to pick up in verse 16 acts chapter 17 it says while paul was waiting for them in athens he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city he went to the synagogue in the uh to reason with the jews and the god-fearing gentiles and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there he also had a debate with some of the epicurean and stoic philosoph- philosophers When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about it should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. And so when Paul was in Athens, all of these things we look back on now and go, man, that's beautiful. All those statues, all those big buildings, they weren't just beautiful art. They were, they were statues, they were uh, idols, they were altars, they were temples dedicated to the Athenians' various gods. Now the first two commandments in the great, like the Ten Commandments are, you shall have no other god before me, and don't make any idol, don't bow down, don't worship these idols, don't serve them. And the Athenians are doing those exact things. And so the idols that, that Paul sees in Athens, they represent a serious problem. Idolatry is worshiping or serving something or someone other than God as the most important thing in your life. It's when you you pay divine honor to a created object. And so God is jealous for our worship. It, throughout Scripture, you see God saying, no, you're, you're only to worship me. And we go, man, that seems rather egotistical. That seems self-centered of God where he's saying, no, you, you need to worship me. But there's a reason behind it. God's command for us to worship him comes from a place of love. Like if, if you've ever had kids, you know they just want to live on McDonald's and candy. That's, that's kind of what they want to survive on. But as a loving parent, you're not going to let them do that. You're going to say, no, we're going to eat fruit, we're going to eat vegetables, we're going to have nutritional meals, because that's what's best for them. You want to give them what is good. And so no loving God lets people worship something less than what is the best. And God is the best. And so if we worship lesser things, you see it messes up your life. Now, how bad was the idolatry problem in Athens? Well, somebody said there was a population of 10,000 people in the city. And somebody guessed that there was about two to 3,000 idols in the city at that time. And, and one Roman writer jokingly said his name was Petronius. He said, it is easier to find a god than a man there. And so Paul's response to this is he, he goes to the synagogue and, and he, he reasons. He goes to the public square. He speaks. He, he, he debates with the philosophers that are there. And so Athens is full of philosophers. Um, These are people who are trying to answer the big questions of life. These questions that relate to origins, reality, meaning, knowledge, morality, and humanity. Essentially, uh, philosophy tries to answer the question like, why is the world, why are things the way they are? And they were trying to answer questions that we still ask today. And so Paul attracts the attention of two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans kind of sound like a group of people who are going to invite you over to their house for a tasting party, and then they're going to try and get you to buy their kitchen food or their utensils and all that. That's, that's a different group altogether. Um, these Epicureans, they follow the teachings of a man named Epicurus. And Epicureans believe that matter was Eternal. What could be touched, what was physical, just has always existed and it will always exist. And so they, they therefore denied that the world was created by a god. Epicureans didn't deny the existence of gods, but they considered them to be uninvolved in the activities of men. They saw history as just kind of being totally random. They saw life without meaning. And after death, there was nothing. And so, what this philosophy counseled people to do was just kind of pursue pleasure, live your life however you want, because you know what? In the end, it it doesn't matter. Um, life is meaningless, gods don't care about you, only what is physical is real. Beyond this life, what you do doesn't really matter. And so this eventually morphed into that philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now the Stoics, they're a bit different. The Stoics also believe in many gods, and they say Zeus was supreme. They believe that the world was created by Zeus, however, all things were, were governed by the fates. Even the gods were subject to these fates. Zeus himself was was subject to the fates, and so fate was in control, and anything that happened was just fixed to happen and so you couldn 't change it and so stoics they they counseled people to courageously um, accept and face whatever your fate is essentially. Uh, Your life is what it is. It can't change. Even the gods can't come and rescue you from your situation. So put on a brave face and just accept your lot in life. Play your part. Now, verse 21, it it tells us that all the Athenians and even the people come to the city, all they tend to do is spend their time discussing the latest ideas. And this kind of makes sense. Because when your philosophy tells you, you know what, your life is meaningless. There is no hope. You kind of go, okay, I hope there's something better out there. You're going to listen and look for a better philosophy to maybe live your life by. And so these these groups, they don't exist anymore, but their ideas still do. They just go by different labels. And so if you look at a lot of philosophies, worldviews, kind of ways of living that are out there in the world, you're going to see that a lot of them eventually land you in this place where life is meaningless there's nothing beyond here there's no hope for your situation now hearing paul preach in the marketplace the people are intrigued and some people say well paul doesn't know what he's talking about he's just heard these ideas here and there he's been going through the internet picking up ideas and now he's kind of spouting them off he has no clue what he's talking about paul's just a moron there's others though who go he's talking about two gods we haven't really heard about this God and Jesus. And what if these are gods that we should worship? What if these are gods that we need to add to the list of the gods that we, we serve and sacrifice to? And so either way, the people want to hear more and they invite Paul to the Areopagus to speak at the high council. And so Paul goes before the Areopagus and this, this is a council that has control over matters of religion, morality, and culture. And for Paul to go before the Areopagus, this is a huge opportunity. And so we'll keep going in verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, before we kind of start pulling this apart, maybe you noticed that Paul does not quote one single Old Testament passage in his message, which is kind of rare for a New Testament message, but he actually quotes one of their poets. And the reason for this is that different audiences call for different presentations. Think about this. The, the, the Athenians don't really know that much about the Judeo-Christian God, and so quoting that scripture to them isn't going to mean a whole lot to them either. Think think of it this way. If, if two Mormons show up at your door sometime this week, knock on it, hey, um, have you heard that in the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith says you need to do this, this, and this. Are, are you going to listen to that and go, okay, yeah, I, I, I better do that. Probably not. I hope not. Because the Book of Mormon doesn't carry authority in your life. You, you haven't studied it. It hasn't been important to you. And so you're probably not going to listen to it. Now, in the same way, this is kind of what's happening in Athens. And in the same way today, if we want to convince people of their need to repent and trust in Jesus... What I'm saying is it's not going to be enough to walk up to a person and say, uh, the Bible says you need to repent and trust in Jesus. That just won't work. And the reason is, is that the Bible no longer carries the authority that it once did in our culture. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible isn't important. I'm not saying that we don't need to study it, know it, live it, um, teach it. But what I'm saying is we need to begin where people are in order to lead people where they need to be. And so Paul, he, he does this. He reasons with his listeners, but that reasoning is rooted in biblical principles. And so there, this is something that we're going we're gonna to need to learn to do better if we're going to reach our post-Christian culture with the gospel we we need to show that, that God's word, that Christianity is reasonable, but that it's also true. so Paul he begins his message where the Athenians are. He pays them a compliment. I notice that you guys are are very religious. Saw all your statues, all your temples, but then he moves to something specific and he mentions their temple to the, un, or the altar to the unknown God. And and the Greeks have this because they're terrified of offending any God that they, they might not have um, thought of or known before. And so they think by sacrificing to this altar of the unknown God, they're going to get by, that, that they'll be forgiven of any omissions that they might make. It's kind of like this. Um, when you see somebody out in public and, and you know you've met them somewhere and you recognize their face, but you're going, I don't know their name. And, and, and then they start to walk up to you and you're going, oh no, oh no, and they kind of say, hey, how are you doing? You're like, I don't know where you're from. I don't know who you are, and so you pull out the, hey there, partner. How you doing, buddy? And you're hoping that this nickname that you've brought out is, is not going to tip them off, that you can't remember who they are, and so the Athenians are going, here's our altar to the unknown God. Hopefully, hopefully this God just We'll be cool with that nickname that we've given them. Hopefully, we'll get over any omissions that we've made. Now, this is the Athenians' admission admission of ignorance about the divine. This is their acknowledgement of the limitations of their religion. This altar exists because they have a sense that they are missing something. And so Paul sees this opportunity to speak to something they all feel. He's going, this God that you... You sense that you have missed, that you have not been able to discover. I'm going to tell you about him. And he lays out a reasonable argument to show that God is more powerful than their idols. The first one is that God is the creator of the universe. And so the Athenians' gods, they have plenty of faults, they have plenty of weaknesses. But Paul's saying the true God is the one who created the world and everything in it. If God created the world, it's logical to understand that he is the Lord, that he is the ruler over everything. It also means that there is a purpose to creation. That is not just random. There's a reason for it, that our lives aren't meaningless. Second one is God is therefore greater than the world and thus not is not dependent on us or anything in all creation. So if God created the world, you can't confine that God to man-made creation temples if god is the source of human life it doesn't make sense that god would be dependent on humans for his support god doesn't need things that we can give him like sacrifices and so the greek um, religion it emphasized what the, the things that the worshipers had to do for the gods whereas christianity it it says that that god wants you he desperately desperately wants you he loves you But in no way does God need you. God does not depend on you in any way. Christianity says that we are dependent on God and what he has done and continues to do for us. The third point is that God is purposeful and Lord over all history. God is the designer. He is sovereign over everything. Life isn't left to chance like Epicurus had taught and he can intervene in our lives contrary to what the Stoics Believed. And so because God is in control, He can intervene in our circumstances. He can come to our rescue. God can deliver us. The fourth one is that God made us to know Him and for fellowship with Him. Now, throughout history, humanity has sought God through different ways. We've we sought God through religions, we've tried different ones. Uh, some people have gotten to the point where we're well, like, well, we just can't know God. That's agnosticism. People have gotten to the point where God doesn't exist, which is atheism. And so um, the reason our attempts to find God have failed is not because God is hiding or God is unavailable, but it's often because we've insisted that we, we, we seek God on our own terms. We, we kind of say, this is what God will be. And if we don't find the God that we hope for, we're going, oh, God must not exist. And we don't accept the fact like, that, that we are created in God's image and God isn't created in our image. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, Paul argues that humanity has no excuse for, for not knowing that God exists. He, he says that creation clearly um, evidences it. And Paul knows and and. And science continues to prove as they do more and more research that something that is as complex, as beautiful as our universe and and you keep going down to our world and into our lives and how they work so smoothly and so intricate, that doesn't happen by accident. That's not by chance. There is a great designer at work. And when Paul says that God is not far from any of us, he is saying that God is omnipresent, which means that God is aware of our circumstances. God is not hiding God is not distanced. God is not unconcerned like the gods of the Greeks. God hears our prayers. He knows our hearts. That Christianity speaks of a God who, who knows each person, who values each person, who loves each person. The fifth point is God cannot be worshipped through uh, created things. Now, if you ha- I want you to do this when you go home. Read Isaiah chapter 44. But in Isaiah chapter 44, he lays out this great argument. He talks of a guy who goes out in the woods, he chops down a tree, he takes that tree home, he cuts the tree in half, he burns half of that tree for, for his fire to keep him warm, he bakes his bread, he roasts his meat over it, and he's, he, he sustains his life kind of through that tree. Then he takes the other half, he carves himself an idol, puts it in the shrine, bows down in front of that wooden idol, says, rescue me, you are my God. And Isaiah goes, that, that's foolish. Like people are taking earthly materials and treating them as if they were their God. Now Paul's point in um, what he's saying here in Acts chapter 17 is that if God created us, it's kind of absurd to think that God is a stick, a stone, or a piece of metal. His, his, his argument is essentially children tend to resemble their parents, and if we as human beings are, again, at this complex, and there's so much going on with us, it's kind of ridiculous to think that, that God is an inanimate object. The sixth point is that since God is our creator and Lord, he has a right to make certain demands of us. Now Paul says because of his grace, God is overlooked. He's made allowances for our ignorance. But now Paul is warning that God is calling everyone to repent of their sins, before the time of judgment. And God has appointed someone, Paul says, Jesus, to judge the world, and he proved it by resurrecting him from the dead. Now, the immortality of the soul, that, that our souls were eternal, that was something the Greeks could go, oh, yeah, we understand, but but resurrecting a physical body. They, they couldn't believe that. And what we see is that the resurrection of Jesus is at the center of God's plan for history but it's also the basis of our hope if god has the power to raise someone from the dead he is by far the most powerful god that there is because even zeus the, the kind of the, the most important supreme god of the greeks zeus could not do that and christianity hinges on the resurrection if jesus was resurrected christianity is true and you need to listen to what it says but if jesus wasn't resurrected, Paul would say we're we're kind of to be pitied. Like, don't really waste your time with it is what Paul is essentially saying because it doesn't do much. Now, Paul is interrupted and shut down by those who sneer at the thought of judgment and the resurrection. Paul doesn't actually get to finish his message. But Paul has made a valid point. You need to pay attention to what someone who has the power to create life and bring life back from the dead says. That that is true power, if somebody has that. And Paul's main point in all of this is that there's only one God that you need to concern yourself with. Any other God is is a counterfeit. Paul would say that false gods lead to false hopes. They're powerless to save you when you really need them most. Now, when we speak about idolatry, most of us are going to go, okay, idolatry is not a problem for me. I don't have a shrine in my house. I don't have an object of wood or metal or um, rock that I bow down to and say, rescue me and save me. But idolatry isn't something of the past. Like God created us to worship. Worship is is in our nature. Now God created us to worship him, but if we're not worshiping him, there's, there's definitely something that you are worshiping. There's always going to be something in your life that is most important to you, that is of greatest value. And idols are those things that we treat as if they were our God, that those things that are the most important thing in our lives. It could be our career, it could be our children, it could be our finances, it could be um, pride, a dream, it could be anything, really. An idol can be anything. And the reality is that most of us, we do practice idolatry, it's just on a more sophisticated level. And so here are some questions that may help us identify what our idol might be. What do you tend to daydream about? What do you spend the bulk of your free time doing? What philosophy do you subscribe to? What what thinkers influence the way that you think? What do your bank statements or credit cards uh, bills tell you about where your income goes? Here's a good one. What are you willing to go into debt and if people were to tour your life they could see your text messages your, uh, your web history if they could just see what's in your house what would they say is most important to you? and the reality is we've all put something in God's place at some point and it's not hard for many of us to skip time in God's word in prayer, in worship or something or to do something that we think is more fun or more important we, we have no trouble taking the credit card and laying it down for something we want. But when it comes to, uh, to tithing, to giving to God regularly, we go, well, that's a little financially foolish. I don't know if I should do that. We have no, time, or no trouble finding um, energy and time for a hobby or a side hustle. But when it comes to serving God's church, we find it hard to do the same. And we all wrestle with idols at some point point but here's the question we need to ask how does my idol measure up to the big questions and challenges that i will face in this life and so run your idol through this test is it created is it dependent on me sacrificing and serving it in some way to sustain it does my idol care about me can it care about me what meaning does it bring to life what hope can it offer what power does it have? Can that idol come to my rescue? Is it worth devoting my life to? And counterfeit gods will destroy your life given enough time because they are powerless to save. They'll show their weakness when you need them the most. Now, I believe that Paul was about to present the gospel before. He was interrupted. He was about to bring the good news about what God has done for each person in his world, that God created the world and he intended us to have relationship with him, but sin entered the world and along with it, death and decay. But God loved us too much to allow us to stay in that and so God intervened. God came to our rescue. He sent his son into the world to pay for our sin, to pay the debt because of our idolatry. And Jesus died on the cross And he went into the grave, but God resurrected him from the dead. And now those who trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior have nothing to fear when that day of judgment comes. But you can face it with hope because God has intervened in our situation. Our sin has been paid for. There is hope beyond this life. Now there were three responses to Paul's message that day. Some rejected it, some procrastinated, and some accepted it. And when it comes to the gospel we have those three options before us. We can reject it, but if we reject it, we're rejecting the only God who has the power to save and we will, we will face that coming judgment on our own. Um, no other idol or God can come to rescue us or you can accept it. You can, you can make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You can invite him into your life and you can talk to myself or Greg or another leader about what that means, what the next steps are. But the one I think that that we we tend to do the most in our culture is this. We say, I need more time. Just give me a bit more time to think about this and I'll have an answer. And it's okay to take time to think and process the gospel, but at some point you need to make a decision. Because if you procrastinate on that decision forever, your indecision ultimately becomes your decision. You reject what God has done for you. And I believe that Christianity alone answers those big questions of a life in in a way that no other God or religion or philosophy can. And Paul's point is true. There is no other God that you need to concern yourself with. No other God is worthy of your devotion, of your worship, of your life. Let's pray.